So I woke up, I mean, I went to bed Thursday night and just couldn't sleep, you know, thinking about what was happening and what had just happened in Milwaukee, you know, after what had just happened with Ahmad Aubrey and after Eric Garner, Tamar Rice, Freddie Gray, Michael Brown goes on and on, Philando Castile. You know, I couldn't help but see the reaction as something that I feared would become what it was and has been, where there was a, just a, a breaking point. And clearly, uh, this week, you know, there's been a breaking point. I think of my high school friends and people I go to work with who live in Atlanta or who I worked with that went to Atlanta, that was in school with me in Atlanta and thought of, you know, one of my favorite friends and just his life, I just went through his life again, uh, George Peeler, a man who, like me, had aspirations to play college football and he was black, he was, I was white in a desegregated moment in the inner city of Atlanta and how we became so close and just thought of his life, how he went to play football, got a full scholarship at West Virginia. And when he got there, he experienced so much hostility and hate, they literally drove him off the campus. I mean, this is a guy who was about 300 and something pounds at that. And, uh, and his life never changed after that. You know, he's now started a business in Atlanta and he's doing pretty well and just a, if you knew him, he's just the most sweet, wonderful, kind, happy person you could ever know. Somehow Thursday, for me, it got personal. And it should have gotten personal a long time ago. I woke up that morning and said, there's just no way I'm going to go preach the sermon that I had planned. So this has been pretty much put together uh, in the midst of all the other chaos that's been going on. Um, and so it's a sermon that really wants us to think about this moment, um, this is not abnormal for the church, of course. We've, we have discerned moments like this before. We did, for instance, in the COVID. I spent, you know, what, I think four or five sermon series on COVID-19. And so, yes, we every once in a while break from our expositional series and we, we take a topic that we think is, is of, on our minds, that we need a word from the Lord. So I pray that you will help us to do that. But as you think about it, as we enter this you know, this topic, which I'm, you know, titling hashtag George Floyd, how to respond. You know, let's, let's keep in mind, it's, it's odd how, you know, you get these two reactions. You know, one worried that justice is not going to be done. The other worried that justice is not going to be done. You know, of course, from a very different vantage point. One who, uh, if you know the history of African Americans in America, know that it's just been passed down for 400 years. You don't trust grand juries. You don't trust uh, courts. Those are the, the vehicles through which technicalities took away uh, reparation lands that had been given to the Africans uh, after the Civil War. Those were the tools that were used for all kinds of injustices. Uh, there's a very deep fear, even if it's unthought of, but you just can't ex experience that unless you know people personally. But And it's unspoken sometimes, but a fear of injustice that that, that comes out of that history, one that maybe they haven't even talked about, but it just came down from granddaddy to granddaddy to daddy till you know it. And, and the fear is so understandable, especially in the way in which these events just seem to be in the face of, here we go again. Of course, there's others who are in the fear that 
we're not going to get the facts and we're not going to take the due diligence and we're not going to follow the protocols that we need in order to make sure we have all the facts straight. And, and of course, that's happening and in the better moments, those are happening simultaneous. Uh, people of great mind, of greater stature will will recognize the tension and will work the tension, and so many are. I, I need you to know that, whether they're pastor friends of mine, whether they're attorneys, they know that, that there's, there's serious fear on both sides. But, of course, you see what happens when, when very irresponsibly, in my humble opinion, you see rhetoric begin to, to inflame. Uh, you see words spoken and said and hear them from our leaders political leaders, even sadly, uh, you know, pastor leaders who traffic, you know, partisan-oriented uh, articles that make you, that, that revs up the engines. You know, I, some of you know in my graduate work here at Yale, I focused on the Civil War, particularly uh, the, w w the church response and the, and the church relationship to that, that upheaval. And um, I, I think back, particularly looking at the border states who were caught in the middle and particularly interested in their perspective, and it's later got published, as some of you know, but it's, it's a, you know, a book that it chronicles the story of what happens when churches take into politics, and many, uh, many wonderful and good historians will, will document how it was not until the church broke apart that we fired, every one of our denominations, that we fired the first shots in Sumter. That was the glue that could have held it together to find a reasonable solution to the problem. And so we come into a moment like that right now. I mean, there really is a kind of civil war beginning. I don't predict that. That's not my point. But we're in a moment like that, a moment where we need to really get a transcendent word from God to speak into our lives, to help us to learn from the mistakes of the church history past, uh, to understand how we move forward. And so with that, I just want us to, uh, to think about this idea of racism in America, but also this idea of, of the church's role in escalated times such as this. In other words, how do we respond? Well, again, as I've tried to illustrate, uh, let's don't forget that whatever our response, it's, it is personal. It may not be as personal for you as others, but it is very, very personal. I heard a black Christian brother say to me this week, quote, tears come to my eyes because that could be me, my brother, my son. It's almost word for word what I've heard every single one of my black friends tell me over the years. Almost word for word for what are my pastor friends here in New Haven who are black have said that they've grown up with, something I can't even fathom and understand as a white man. It's real. It's personal. And again, to be clear, I don't think I, we can possibly appreciate the hurt, the pain, the solidarity of what my friends, my good friends, must feel like living in America some, in a time like this. I so worry. I texted my friend Keith King and my friend Tolliver Wills and my friend Jason over at the, the Church of the Rock and others and just wanted them to know that, that in so many words I wanted to communicate, just do know most of America is not opposed to you, that, that we are here with you and that we stand with you and we love you.
It's just so stupid. So what is our response? Well, it certainly can't be uh, justice with violence. It can't be angry with sin. It's got to be angry. It's got to be justice, but not with violence and sin. There's got to be mercy, but mercy without bias. And on we could go. The response to violent protest is as sinful, you could say, as what originated, potentially. Maybe not in the intentionality of people who are doing it, caught up in their emotions. There's brokenness, there's weakness. Young men with other issues caught up in the moment. I don't, I'm, these, are, these are people like we all are, all on all sides, who are made in the image of God and who are working and striving to survive in life in ways that, that might escalate the way it has. But at the same time, our response cannot be that which would lead to a 24-year-old man fatally shot by a protester in Detroit or a federal officer who was shot outside a federal building in Oakland and a seven people shot in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and on it goes. And so this is an incredibly complicated subject. I pray my friends here in CPC would give me grace as, as I seek to, to really understand the word of God on this. And, uh, and here, here's more or less what's going to happen here. First, um, our response is going to have to be that we must be humble wherever and whatever place we are in this. Whatever color we are, whatever history we have, we got to stop and recognize that we need to be humble right now. And we need to listen, really listen, to trust and believe our friends when they say that living in America is not the same experience for them as us. We need not to question it with a bias that might expose a lot if we stop to think about it. Why bias that? Why, why second guess it? We need to listen to them. While we can't ever naively say I'm colorblind as if to conveniently not think about or ignore their reality, and of course our mandate as Christians to see they're black if you're white. And yes, even if black, to see they're white if you're not, if you're black. As if to experience in America, especially so that we can obey the mandate, which is what's driving this whole sermon, honestly. Bear one another's burdens. That's a command. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Certainly, as I've said, we're going to need to transcend the politicization and hype that leverages tragedy like this on both sides for political or personal gain, resisting the urge to escalate the passions with words that are not moderate, that words that are not compassionate, words that are instead filled with, with wrath and anger and clamor and malice. And on it goes, according to Colossians. And finally, we must regulate what we say here in this pulpit and in this church. We are charged not to be legislators on behalf of Christ. We are charged to speak forth and execute the legislation of Christ. He is the only Lord and Savior of this church. Only he can speak into this context in a definitive and policy-making way. And so with that, let me just again, we're going to end with this, but the, we need to be measured. 
Again, we must be angry without sin. We must seek justice without violence. We must give mercy without bias. We must seek reconciliation without oppression. We must share solidarity without presumption. And we bring that together in this passage, particularly as we think about our desires and how our desires lead to sin and how sin, and we've seen it too graphically this week, leads to death. We need to start way back at the beginning of our desires and examine our heart. Lord, help me and us as we take a first step in our response by asking you to search our hearts and expose them wherein they are according to sinful desires or assumptions that you would root them out. Perhaps unintentionally evil, unintentionally, but there. The contaminants, the very contaminants that that are so combustible in our souls. Contaminants that we would be prone not to see unless you open wide our hearts to your scrutiny. So would you do that for us today? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm turning to James because James basically is one of the most amazing passages here where we are given a kind of pathology report as related to the problem of sin. It's very carefully written in that way, a a, a kind of a pathology there, unmasking, if you will, what makes sin sinful? What happens in us when we sin? And with that, I thought it'd be a good place to then to examine even this issue that's going on today around us. Notice that it, it's, it very carefully crowns, or I'm sorry, it very carefully sandwiches this pathology in a promise and warning. It really is a passage that recognizes it, that what, it is, what it's tempting to do in this pathology is to have ramifications that are truly life and death. It begins in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You'll see that word is the same word for temptation, is the same word for test. For when he has stood the test, same word as the trial, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is a clear promise, a promise to persevere and struggling against sin. And the reward is great. The reward is life. Now clearly what's in view here is is a reward that awaits us at the end of this this contest, this race. Using the word crown, that's symbolic, particularly in the first century, uh, of, of what would happen when you were victorious in a, literally, a athletic event. You would be crowned as the victor. The crown of life, a symbol then of, of, of this incredible victory over a contest. He's saying, if you persevere in this struggle against sin, not perfect, but persevere in the struggle, as we'll see, then you will receive the crown of life. Now, whenever the scripture speaks of this crown of life, we understand that this Life, this flourishing in this now not yet age of the kingdom of God is both now beginning to to unveil itself and, and to become our reality even as it's not yet complete and full. And so you can see it even now for there is real and genuine advantage to struggling and pushing back at, 
at that sin, at the very core level that our pathology will help us to understand. In order that we can live now, we can flourish now. We see pockets of heaven wherever we see the gospel flourish. Really, we do. All around the world. We can't forget that. There are churches meeting in our city, many of which I hope and pray you've now gotten to know some of those people through our cooperation together that are worshiping and meeting. And if they were to walk in our room and we in their room, there would be hugs and kisses and genuine love. The gospel is incredibly powerful. And the crown of life is something that I experience and you do too in our communion together, in our communion with other Christians around the world. It's amazing how real it is. We do believe and we do hope that things can change now. But we recognize it will always be within the context of a great struggle. And so therefore we hear this promise that it is truly about life and life more abundant. That this pathology is offered to us. Equally, the warning is clear. It ends, the very last phase. But sin, if it's allowed to continue to, to grow and develop and to, and to be fostered into our hearts, as you'll see, if it, if it goes from that first kernel of desire to sin, and then it will always bring death. Death to relationships, death to community, death to our society. I don't need to talk about death right now. If I do, I don't know where you're living. We see it. And it is the tragedy of sin. Full grown. Fully matured. And of course it speaks of an eternal death. A death and separation from life which is the source of life God and a death that we know is hell. For the wages of sin is death, the scripture tells us, but the free gift of God is eternal life. There it is again. We just can't forget when we support a church that preaches the gospel, when we attend a church that preaches the gospel, when we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are doing something that has the only power in all of the world to conquer death and to give us eternal life. The gospel is second to nothing in terms of where our passions and our effort and our focus should be. Again, that's why it's going to govern what I say on a social media. I will want to say nothing there, nothing there, that would in any way burn a bridge for me to be able to be God's agent in, in sharing the faith of Jesus Christ to a person on either side of the debate. That's one of the rules that I try to keep and I've encouraged our pastors to keep. Don't get there. Don't go partisan. I want to save whatever right leader, whatever left reader that is involved in the tumultuous moment as much as the other. God is no respecter of persons. I'm a pastor. You're a Christian. Christian. There's something much more important than America here. Death and life. Even as we may and hopefully do, we love our homeland and want to also participate in its experiencing of common grace in every way we can. Life and death, that's the first point. The pathology is carefully framed. Don't 
Take this casually. Notice the condition then that's given as to this life and death promise and warning. The crown of life, it's very clearly stated, is for those who love him. Now, what does it mean to love him? Well, clearly, it's not perfection that's spoken of here. It's perseverance. It's those who are loyal to him. It's those who will not abandon him. It's those who will keep fighting for him, who won't quit. That's the language. That's the connection between this very carefully crafted statement, those resisting temptation, and then when they fall, they repent, and they believe again in the gospel, and they pick back up with their battle, and they'll do it a hundred million times before they'll die. That's, that's an understatement. <laughs> do it thousands of times if you're thinking honestly and humbly every day when you pray in the morning. When we confess our sins, when we put our hope and faith in Christ again, give yourself some time and just realize how many times we must keep getting up after we fall. This is not a promise for those who, are, who in any way will be perfect. The love of Christ is demonstrated in not quitting, not abandoning Christ and his love for us. That's the point. And so that then sets us up nicely. Even as Paul has said, Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Even as he says in Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Every Christian needs to hear this and be single-minded ultimately in everything we say and do, not to burn a bridge. This is the whole point of Romans 14, by the way, and Paul. He had a situation just as intense as this, easy, between the Greeks and the Hebrews. And everything he'd said in that book of Romans was driven by that tension. And as he said it, he's constantly saying there's no distinction with God between Jew and Gentile. God is no respecter of race, if by that you mean that there is some kind of a favored status race. God is no respecter of, of, of anything, you know, that, that would in any way diminish the equality of every person and the relation of every person potentially to Jesus Christ is not a sectarian Lord, but as a universal Lord. That is the core of the first century faith. The very beginning, the first confession, it says it in John, this is it. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is Lord, period. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, we got to get that into our liturgy. You know, that should be a confession at the end of our service. What do you believe, Christians? Jesus is Lord. Stop. Let your head get around that. We persevere. Whatever else you do, whatever else you are, it pales in comparison to how important that statement is and how we persevere and seeking that statement to be true in our life. Now, that's how all this stuff sets up. Then he does one more thing before he gets to the pathology. Jesus is Lord. Amen, brother. You can hear it now. And then he says, oh, but don't, don't for a moment think then that you can blame God for your sin. So he's setting us up for this pathology. Verse 14 he wants to help us and 
persevering in our struggle against sin and remember that all sin is at the core a rejection of God as Lord. It can't be blamed on God as Lord. And so what does he do? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Hmm. I know, come on, somebody's got to be squirming right now. I mean, pastor, didn't Jesus, who is God and man, get tempted? Yep, yep, I got to squeamishly say he did. Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up the Spirit into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. The word tempt here is the same word. Hebrews 2, for he became himself, was suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Same word, tempt. And you ask, isn't God sovereign such that in effect God does decree all things, including temptation? You see that again in John 6, lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. The Lord is being tested here. First Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fairy temptations when it comes upon you to tempt you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed, i.e. it was intended by God. So these are good questions. Real quickly, because I really don't, this isn't the point, but I, I think I need to address it. Even if we think about what's happening right now, you know, how do we put this decree of God stuff, which we believe, Lord, Jesus is Lord, into this situation? Is it God's fault, really, ultimately? Well, there's a real deep mystery that's about to come out in this pathology. And here it is. First, put on your thinking caps just for a minute. Note that in this whole passage, the words tempt, trial, and test, they're used seven times in what, four or five verses? And every one of those words, though translated in a different way often, are the exact same Greek word. Now that's important. Second, and why it is so important that we have access to the original language when we do these kind of works, would you believe that every one of these seven instances that are the same word, well, it's clear that they're used differently. In other words, even as indicated by the translator's use of the, different, of, the, of the different English words for the same Greek word, they're trying to get the nuance of how that word is being used within the common range of that word. It's called, you know, we talk about semantics. Semantics is the study of, of not a root word study, like what does the word mean based on some kind of etymology of, of the word, but a, a, a semantic is the study of how words are used in a culture. We use words all the time differently. You know, I play around the word sick. I play around with the word. And if you're really trying to get my, my attention, sometimes I'll put it all in three sentences. You know, oh, that's sick that you're sick. <laughs> now, I hope I wouldn't say that. But you see the point. It kind of gets, you, it gets your attention. You're going, oh, I gotta, it's, it's making you think. And I think that's exactly what James is doing here. Taking a word that in its common semantic range of that day. Uh, yeah, a t attempt can be a neutral thing. 
attempt can be an evil thing. And there's this kind of dotted line it, that he's going to now draw here. I'm really giving you the, the whole story right here. But it, it, he starts off with how, yes, uh, Jesus was tempted. And yes, there's this temptation that, that was not sinful. It was neutral. It was objective. It's the kind of temptation that you have by some objective reality. You're hungry. And you therefore have a desire to eat. That is a temptation. That is an occasion. That's, that is the very first, in this pathology, the very first step that may or may not lead to sin. You know, Paul talks about this in Corinthians. How it is that, that God is faithful with every temptation will provide a way of escape. That temptation may be, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted. I'm experiencing racist hatred. I'm experiencing counter-racist hatred. Whatever we are, wherever we're doing, there's a sense in which there is a kind of temptation that is, you could say, morally neutral. I'm, 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 I want sex. That's a morally neutral temptation as a young man or woman, perhaps, or even a middle age, or I didn't mean to say anything about that. That was stupid. Um, you get yourself in trouble somehow. But you know my point, that, that there is a kind of temptation, and that's fine. But Paul would then say, because that's exactly what drove his comments in chapter 7, he says, yeah, but they get married. See, there was a faithful and unfaithful response to a biological reality. How it is that we were made as, quote, sexual people, and yet there is a faithful and unfaithful response to that reality. We are made with the stomachs to get hungry, but there is a faithful response to my hungry or an unfaithful response that leads to sin. That's the point. Christ, yes, was tempted with all manifestations of temptations that were in these categories, and yet we will argue never once from Scripture, never once did he follow the dotted line in that moment where it was conceived, the word that's used in James, conceived unto sin. That conception, it was born. It was evidently not born back in the first desire, a desire to feed myself. It was born dot, 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 in this moment, a mystery to be sure, where the desire, morally neutral, became a sinful desire. I'm going to steal. I'm going to commit adultery, whatever that is. You see where we're going? And so here we have this amazing series of events which leads to sin. How it is that each person is tempted when, and here we go, the pathology. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Is he sinning yet? Or she? Are you thinking? Is he sinning yet? When each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Well, the answer is no in the way that James is saying it here. Why do you know that? Well, look closely. Then this desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. 
pre-sinful desire becomes sinful, very clearly. And then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is a point along a continuum here where temptation, morally neutral, turns into temptation, morally sinful. And it parallels desire. Desire becomes the focal point. Desire. Where is your desire? Your desire for justice. Your desire for mercy. Your desire for righteousness, for truth. Your desire for anything. Your desire. Something that could begin as a very morally neutral thing. In fact, even a noble thing that would create ambition. But how somewhere along the line, something happens. What is that? It's lordship. Do I fulfill my desire with myself on the throne? Or do I fulfill my desire with Christ on the throne? There it is. Those who persevere in loving me. Those who go back over and over and over again, dethroning themselves, enthroning, enthroning Christ. That's the pathology here. It's a powerful thing. You know, it's interesting how, when you stop to think of this pathology, how often the scripture then, and it makes sense when it begins to deal with how do we then live as Christians, begins to focus on the desires. Think about Colossians 3. Okay, Paul says, so you've been raised with Christ. Now I want you to seek the things that are above, not here below. Above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, i.e. seek the things that are according to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yes, even here in the way he phrases, acknowledging it's not going to be worldly. Now we use that word so much in Christianity that I think we lose its power. It's not of this world. It's not earthly. It's, it's not the new normal that sin creates in a society. Let's put it that way. Right now, we live in an era. And when I read these words of the, uh, from above versus from below, you'll think, oh my gosh. I mean, this isn't normal. This, we're, we are constantly having to get on the balcony to look at our lives and to ask, now, what is choreographing my life? If the choreography of my life is social media and media and print media and everything that's going on around me in this tumultuous kind of new normal, then very subtly and slowly the lordship of Christ gets translated to what pleases people. To what makes me hip? What makes me uh, effective? What will gain me a following? We love, you know, there's study in the social medias. We love that endorphin bouncing moment when we're liked. And that becomes Lord. Now you say to yourself, well, come on, I don't do that in social media. In fact, I don't even use social media. You know, social media is just a wonderful object lesson of what we do every time we talk to people. You are social. You do talk to people. You engage people. You in interact with your colleagues and friends and neighbors. And, and you, like, like as graphically, if you put a graph on social media, could see you are 
you and I are just, I don't care if you use social media or not, there is this sort of endorphin-giving satisfaction when someone agrees with us. And when the whole world has reframed, has reformed, uh, if you will, this, this lordship issue, then we're going to get a lot of likes. Because we'll say things that those who are in our bubble, whether it's a right or left, whether it's this community or that community, this team or that team, this school or that school, this major or that major, this profession or that profession, when we get into our little bubble, we quickly learn what those likes are. Now, let's listen to this. Listen to, if thinking of James, thinking of what he's just told us, this pathology where, where if you really are going to struggle... And if you're going to be steadfast to persevere, you've got to get the focus off of just your behavior, off of what you kind of say when it's in a politically correct environment. You need to really go deep into your heart that really the only other person that knows it is God, to be frank. Some others may get a glimpse of it if they're close to you. You need to get into that heart of desire, that affection is what Edwards called it. Go there. Listen to it. What do you feel is coming from there? And listen to the comparison. Set your things on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, says Paul. For you have died to those things on earth when you were resurrected from the life, he says. What are those things? So listen to them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. We're in a world that, that thinks that the only authentic emotion is passion. Here it's listed as a sin. To be passionate about everything is, can be sinful. Passion, evil desire, covetousness. And then he goes on. He wants to make sure you understand. So you put all this stuff off, and then he gets even deeper. He goes a little step earlier, deeper. He goes, put away, and then here it is. Listen to your heart, please. It's not about you and anyone else. It's you and God. Do you love him? Is he your Lord? if you're going to struggle and persevere you must recrown him not only in those areas that people can see or the Christian church can know about you must crown him in your heart and so it put away anger wrath malice slander obscene language That's the source of death. Though it will take maybe three or four or five more ellipsis dots to get there. But that's where it starts, right there. Death. In contrast, if you will, the vaccine. How do you do it? There's this, this contaminant in there. We got to we got to put some vaccine on it. So here's the vaccine. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, which you know, I don't know at all. I'm humble. Patience. Bear with one another. Rather than me thinking how I'm going to kill everybody else. And as the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive them too. 
and above all, put on love. Now that is an incredible. I, I, I've never felt the power of this passage like I have this week. I, I can say that. As I just listen to the rhetoric, the responses, both in high offices and in low offices, in the church, in the state, and I see the way that we are blindly and small-mindedly playing into this earth passion, this earth normal. People who, especially those who have influence, how words can create movements. It is my greatest sadness, I think. I mean, as I was following the news, cities and neighborhoods were getting torched. How did we get there, I was wondering. As I'm looking at this passage, this is how we got there. Started way back in a family room and, or a walk on the street filled with rage. Or any of these, these attitudes. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Trafficking articles, social media hyped up. Judgments against people. You know, we can, we can describe racism. We need to describe it as a church. I'm going to try to do it at the very end here. We need to describe it in a categorical way. But racism is extraordinarily complex. If you've been working with it for a while, I mean, I learned it both anecdotally, but also more and more as I've studied it, as I've interacted with other people and pastors about it. It's our whole thing, focus, as you know, with the BOH. We do it often. And, you know, it's just complex, you know, but it all comes down to typically generalizations. Some people call it profiling, but, but at the heart of racism is, of course, this idea of inferiority, but how do we get there? Some, some treating others inferiorly. But we get there by generalizations, generalizations that, that have all kinds of historical situations rooted to it, present circumstances rooted to it, where somehow all these things begin to subdue and to diminish the reality that I'm staring at someone that I'd be tempted to worship when I see them in heaven. That's how glorious is the Imago Dei, the image bearer of God that every human being has. How would you treat that human being? Even a human being broken, maybe a human being sinning, how would you treat him? You know, I, I reference almost always when I talk about racism, two men that have had extraordinary impact on my life from their lives, not because they're personal, although I did meet one of them, um, and that is John Perkins and, of course, Martin Luther King Jr., and it's just amazing, these men, how... I think of Perkins, how in the jail being absolutely brutally tortured, how the Spirit of God raised up in him like Christ. We started praying for those who were beating him. I mean, it's like, and he did, it, it, it was written in his autobiography. I encourage everyone to read that book, Let Justice Roll. He's got a bunch of Let Justice Roll kinds of titles. I think it's just Let Justice Roll in this one. And it's just a powerful story of, of, of a Christ-likeness that, that swelled up in a man who then led a movement, as if you know him, is probably one of the most powerful movements of city, uh, you know, uh, reconciliation. His three R's, reconciliation, reallocation, and um, um, what's the other one? 
reallocation, reconciliation, oh, redemption, something like that. But the point is, is that, that, that this, is, this is right here is where it starts. It starts right here in our hearts. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Words that in our society today, listen to me, they feel weak. That's sad. They feel weak. Find these words in John Perkins. Go find these words in the life of Martin Luther King. You will not find a weak man there. You will find someone so strong it makes this pseudo strength of rhetoric, the rhetoric of anger and hate look very small, very broken, very weak. John Perkins, from what I know, and I did get to meet him, I knew his daughter when I was working in the inner city for four years we met, and if there's anything I know about John Perkins, he's probably the strongest person I've ever met with conviction enough to fill a room and with compassion, honestly, with compassion more than anyone I've ever seen that bridged the gap between white and black in Southern America, who bore out of it a movement where he was just as popular speaking in a white, all white church as he was speaking in an all black church because both felt his compassion and love and strong conviction. That's what we need to rediscover here. In this moment, we need to repent and turn away from like. We need really to reconsider what strong is and what it would look like to truly be compassionate and kind and meek. We need to reorient ourselves and see the man, Jesus Christ, as strong a man as ever there was who lived these words all the way to the cross. It's unbelievable. Well, let me bring this to a close. I have a whole lot of stuff here I wished I could talk about, racism and all that it is. But let me just keep in mind that these certain things, we must never forget that our first purpose as a Christian in life is to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will not want to burn one bridge with one person or group or movement or anyone where we have access to do that. Two, we must remember that your desire for justice or mercy, even your anger that is righteous against sin, are all good and noble things. We ought to seek justice and mercy together. And they're not mutually exclusive. I hope you know that. You can as well put someone in jail and forgive them and love them with the gospel. They are not mutually exclusive. Justice is a pathway to mercy, in fact. We see it in the gospel. Without justice, there was no mercy. That's the point. It must be satisfied. God is a God of justice. And mercy. You know, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. Seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God, said the prophet. That's what we need to rediscover first. And secondly, I think we need to understand and rediscover 
Yes, there's ideological racism, a kind of racism that somehow has rationalized that one or another race is inferior to another. There's a history of that. It, it often, probably the most modern history is what's called scientific racism, and how it's, it's a pseudoscience by any scientist you talk to, but the idea of evolution and somehow that emerged. Of course, that was what influenced Hitler and others. But there's also a biblically informed racism that is very pseudo, the way in which the mark of Cain or the curse of Ham, of Ham, which if you go back, have nothing to do with race. They have everything to do with a covenantal status with the kingdom of God based on total other factors. But anyway, I won't go there. We don't have the time. Just leave it to say there's absolutely zero way you could be a Christian and you would have any notion that there could be a race inferior to another. But that's truly not the kind of racism I mostly encounter and never hardly encountered it, even in the South in the 70s. I don't think I know one person that would make that statement, that one race is inherently inferior to another. I didn't know anyone like that growing up. What I do see, and it's the word segregation racism, and what I mean by that is a way of, of generalizing cultural uh, characteristics relative to one race or to another, and with those cultural distinctions, discerning that, that there is a, a superiority of culture that gives you, therefore, the right to segregate in certain ways. And by segregate, I don't mean just geopolitically. I mean in, in terms of your attitude, your heart, all sorts of things. And in this cultural kind of segregation, um, it, it's sad because so many factors get confused even. I mean, you know, there's a history. History is I put on there with Martin Luther King in his statement. History in many ways forms us. There's a history of the African people in America. A history filled with sin against them, to be sure. And a history that had consequences. So people have a characteristic. They have this sort of knee-jerk reaction of, well, what does blackness mean culturally? And what they immediately import is a generalization from the reality that, that coming out of slavery, out of failed reparation, out of Jim Crow laws, out of, of welfare, and et cetera, that, that there is a, admittedly, a bad and wrong, but there is a greater percentage of poor African Americans in America than in comparison to the percentage of other group, people groups. And that association to be poor, you see, is, creates a whole set of characteristics that are not related to race whatsoever. Take the same race, put them in another history, and they wouldn't see it. Now, if you understand that, you would immediately begin to see that, well, well then, I, I, the very opposite of what I've just said is segregation. The very answer to our reconciliation is desegregation. Let me just tell this last story. You know, I've, I've mentioned it, that I was part of a desegregation movement in Atlanta in the very first years and had this explosive moment. But here's the thing that came out of that experience for me. I walked in, just to give you an illustration, I walked into it with this notion as a young man, white man in, in Atlanta, Georgia, that, you know, uh, yeah, athletes are, I mean, uh, African-Americans, man, they're, they're more athletic. You know, and that sounds real innocent. You could say, but you, and somebody would say, well, that sure is kind of written. I mean, that's a good thing. They're athletic. 
How do you feel about a black quarterback? I'd lie. I'd say, oh, well, why not? But every time I actually encountered one, I had this weird reaction. Like, oh, that's not supposed to happen. They're, they're supposed to be the fullbacks. <laughs> you know, and we're dealing with this stuff on my team. It's weird. Now, I'm saying that it's kind of an obvious, it's not that big a deal, but it is because there's this subtle inferiority of intellectualism justified by athleticism. That's how complicated racism can be. Max, you know, just, just you know, go, go on. Well, try going to a school that was truly pretty 50-50, you know, both my teachers, both my students. I, the number one thing that came out of that experience was just absolutely crashing, just totally destroying, I mean, probably hundreds of, of, of generalizations. You know, whether it's that one I because why? I went to a school. I, in fact, almost every team we played on the football field was all black. Very quickly, hold it. They're bad black athletes and they're good white athletes. Hold it. They're really smart black people and they're really dumb white people. And hold it. There's extroverted black people and there's introverted black people and extroverted white people and introverted white people. And all of a sudden, all this stuff comes out and it just crushes this cultural racism that puts someone in a box profiling them and uses that for personal gain or leverage. That's what we've got to work on. And there's more, but I don't have time to talk about it. So let me just end with this cliche that we come up with. I, we posted it, but it's something that I think that, that we need to, to think about. There needs to be anger without sin. I mentioned that. You know, not the kind... Uh, all anger, if it's righteous anger, listen, has to be sad. You know that if you're a parent. All anger, if it's righteous anger, has to be sad. That'll be a big key for you. Not the kind that wants to win, but the kind that wants to win over. Righteous anger wants to save, not destroy. Secondly, justice without violence. You know, Christians, even theologically conservative Christians, can care about matters of social justice. We need to say that in a world right now that thinks otherwise. Clearly, our pathology of sin, this needs to start with changing the rhetoric and the attitudes and the desires. Martin Luther King said this way, in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. We adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community of peace with itself. We will try to persuade with our words, but if our words fail, we will try to persuade with our acts. What's he saying? It's very short-lived to use words to mobilize someone in an angry protest. Because ultimately there's a counter-protest. And there's a counter-anger. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. Do not tolerate in your in those who influence you, do not tolerate this kind of anger in their rhetoric. I encourage you, and if you see it in me, I want you to tell me I saw it in you today, Preston. I pray God you won't. There must be mercy without bias. There is no distinction. We extend mercy 
to all sides of justice seeking. Mercy is of first importance, of course, in the gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. Christ was willing to give mercy to some of the most sinful people. That's not to acknowledge or to endorse their sin. It's not to in any way not participate in reform of, and, and re-system, re you, know, re, you know, creating new systems for good reform. But man, it's never personal in the sense that we can't offer genuine love and mercy. Seeing deeper that if what we've seen in the pathology today is that sin is deep and much of it is unconscious. We need to have some pity upon sinners as Jesus did. He came to save sinners. We've whitewashed that to just Pharisees that we don't know one of that class in this day. No, he came to save sinners, racist included. Are we Christ-like enough to save a racist and to build a bridge? To save someone, and we've had this, we've had this conversation before, CPC. There was another election with another uh, regime, and there are other moral issues at stake, and I remember then having to say the same thing. Hold on. Do we want to save an abortionist? Or do we want to leverage them for my cause in America? Do we want to save someone who who's different from my, our, our, what we believe the Scripture teaches about sexual orientation and, and marriage? Or do we want to leverage them for a political purpose? Christian, choose What's more important to you? And choose your leaders carefully. Reconciliation without oppression. You know, so often reconciliation historically has been at the expense of empowerment. There's a history here. There's a lot of stuff that I'm, in, that I'm thinking through. I know I don't have time to do it now. I'm already over time. But think about that. What must someone who is being oppressed do in order to be reconciled? Must an empowered young black man give up his empowerment, even his fight to be respected? There is a term in my head right now that's so ugly, I don't even know if I can say it. <laughs> Please forgive me if it, if it offends you. I won't say it all. There is a whole history of condemning the uppity blank. That should gag you. A man who wants to be respected, who wants not to submit into the oppression and order to be saved, to not be arrested, whatever it might be. And there's solidarity without presumption. I again wrote to some of my brothers this week and told them that I'm standing with them. But I was very careful to say, and I need to keep saying it, I really, really want to listen. But I also need you to know that I really, really need you to give me grace because I can't live your life in your history. I just can't. I can only get close to it as you let me get close to you. 
In so many words, that's what I mean by solidarity without presumption. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Amen.